Hello, everybody, and welcome to our quarterly podcast discussing activities to support consistent application. This podcast covers the second quarter of this year. My name is Bruce McKenzie, and I'm a member of the International Accounting Standards Board, and I also chair the IFRS Interpretations Committee. I'm joined here today with Karen Higgins and Lene Stepton, who are members of the committee. So thanks to both of them for joining us. Uh, today's podcast will cover discussions at the June 2023 committee meeting. At this meeting, the committee discussed two new submissions, one relating to financial instruments and the other in a separate, uh, relating to separate financial statements, and provided input on two of the ISB's projects, being climate-related risks in the financial statements and business combinations under common control. At this meeting, the committee also continued discussing a matter relating to presenting financial statements in a hyperinflationary currency and considered whether to refer this to the ISB for further standard setting. Now, the meeting papers and a recording of the committee's discussions are available on our website. So let's get started with the new submission. The first one asks how an entity that prepares separate financial statements applying IS-27 accounts for a merger with its subsidiary in its separate financial statements. Now, the committee found that the matter described in the request did not have widespread effect. Consequently, the committee decided not to add this to the standard setting agenda and published a tentative agenda decision. I remember stakeholders have got 60 days to comment on the committee's tentative conclusion. Moving on to the next item, Karen, would you like to give us an overview of the question in the submission? Thanks, Bruce, and hello to everyone who's listening. Well, this was an interesting item with more than two hours of discussion amongst all the committee members. The committee had received a submission that described three different fact patterns. But in essence, the submission asked about the application of requirements of IFRS 9, which are commonly referred to as the own use exception, specifically to physical contracts to buy renewable energy. These, contract, these questions arise because companies experience application challenges when applying these requirements to renewable energy contracts because of the unique characteristics of the renewable energy market and the related features of the long-term physical delivery contracts. As companies are increasingly looking for renewable energy sources and looking to secure their long-term energy supply at a fixed price, the use of power purchase agreements or PPAs in short are increasing and this issue is clearly relevant to many stakeholders globally. But Karen, I'm just jumping into that. I mean, haven't these requirements on own use been around for a long time? I mean, why do you think people are raising this now? I noticed you mentioned something about the unique characteristics in the renewable energy markets. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a good question, Bruce. And, and you're correct. The own use exception has been around for, for quite a while. And in fact, the requirements were carried over unchanged from IS-39. And it's not that the questions relate to the requirements of own use in general. I think in most cases, the requirements are clear and can be applied consistently. However, if you think about the renewable energy market, it does have some unique characteristics that makes it difficult for entities to assess whether a contract is held for the entity's own usage requirements. For example, when electricity is produced by, say, a wind or a solar farm, the electricity is delivered to the customer, and then the customer has a very short window within which the electricity has to be consumed. If that customer isn't able to use the electricity within that very short window, it has no choice but to sell the electricity to the market because at this time, electricity generally can't be stored. So the transactions when this excess 
energy is unable to be used and must be sold to the, the market or the grid are really what give rise to the questions about whether a renewable energy purchase contract is held for own use. Because these short windows of time in which the customer has to determine whether to use the electricity or sell it, it's, it's reasonable that an entity would expect, even from the outset of the contract, that there probably will be windows of time over the life of the contract where it won't be able to consume the electricity that's generated from these renewable sources and, and when it's delivered to them by the renewable energy generator. As we discussed it, other characteristics that contributed to the questions and I think the challenges is that in many cases, these renewable energy contracts are, are have a very long duration, so 25 or 30 years. And the produ production of renewable energy is difficult to schedule. We don't know when the sun is going to shine or the wind is going to blow. And, and the, consumer, the consumer has really no control over when the electricity is delivered in that case. I'm after one thing, remembering the discussions from my side, uh, you learn something new every day when you're in the Interpretations Committee. So tell me, what did the committee decide on this one? Well, for those that listened to the discussion, they, they would have heard a, a very lengthy discussion. And I think it's fair to say that uh, the committee members had some mixed views. But, but in the end, the committee members agreed that we should recommend to the International Accounting Standards Board to consider whether they would add a narrow scope standard setting project on this matter to its work plan that specifically looks at how you apply paragraph 2.4 of IFRS 9 to these unique physical PPAs to buy renewable energy. Thanks very much, Karen. And I must say, from our side, it was a really interesting discussion to follow, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the, uh, the views of the other board members are. Let's move on now. Let's talk a bit about the follow-up discussion on the consolidation of a non-hype inflationary subsidiary by a hype inflationary parent. Now, for this topic, we have Donay Septon, another of our IFRIC members, joining us. Now, the committee first discussed this matter in June last year. Now, just as a reminder, ICE 29, which is a standard that applies to hype inflationary accounting, requires companies whose functional currency is hype inflationary to restate its financial statements for the effect of inflation for the period. Now, this is because in a hyperinflationary inflationary economy, money loses purchasing power at such a rate that comparison of amounts from transactions that have occurred at different times would be misleading. Now, on the fact pattern the committee discussed last June, a company reports financial statements in a hyperinflationary currency. So, for example, let's assume they use Argentinian pesos. However, in this, its subsidiary that it consolidates does not apply to IS-29 because its subsidiary functional currency is not hyperinflationary. inflationary. So, for example, let's assume it's US dollars. So now, what was the question? Donay, over to you. Hi, everybody. Bruce, to answer your question, when the parent consolidates the subsidiary, it applies IS-21 to translate the subsidiary's financial statements. The question was whether the parent is required, after applying IS-21, to restate the financial statements of the subsidiary to reflect the effect of inflation. The committee at its discussion last June concluded that the parent could restate or not restate the subsidiary's financial statements and actually ask the staff to perform more research on this matter. Now, thanks, Donna. Now, fast forwarding to June 2023, what did the committee learn from all this research that was done? Well, the research was very, very interesting, Bruce, and I have to say that the research confirmed that the submitted fact pattern is actually common in hyperinflationary countries and that there's diversity in practice. Interestingly enough, the research actually identified a related problem. 
In some hyperinflationary countries, local regulators require companies to present financial statements in the local hyperinflationary currency. So some companies in those countries have a non-hyperinflationary functional currency, like the US dollar. To present their financial statements in the local hyperinflationary currency, these companies follow the same path in IS21 as the financial statements of the non-hyperinflationary subsidiary in the submitted fact pattern. These companies in the related matter fall outside the scope of hyperinflationary accounting. They apply only the requirements in IS21. However, we heard concerns that applying only the existing requirements do not result in useful or comparable information because amounts in the financial statements do not reflect the currency's current purchasing power, the critical element of hyperinflation accounting. So the question in both the submitted fact pattern and this related matter that was uncovered during the research phase is about whether to reflect the effects of inflation in non-hyperinflationary functional currency amounts when presented in a hyperinflationary currency. Say that three times, Bruce. Thanks, Bill. So what did the committee actually decide? Financial statements prepared using hyperinflationary accounting are typically really difficult to understand. And there's actually a lot of diversity in accounting for similar situations, which just even adds more complexity and difficulty to really understanding what hyperinflationary accounts are trying to tell the user. So in considering whether to refer only the resubmitted fact pattern to the ISB for possible narrow scope standard setting, there were questions about the feasibility and the costs and the benefits of addressing only this particular fact pattern in isolation. However, our discussion highlighted that there could be sufficient benefits to understanding narrow scope standard setting that simultaneously addresses both the submitted fact pattern and this related matter identified during the research phase and translating it's what's an entity translating their own financial statements into a hyperinflation currency. Having considered all of this, we decided to refer both the issues to the ISB for possible narrow scope standard setting. Now, I understand the committee also discussed and provided some feedback on a possible amendment to address these two issues. I must say, the staff do come up with really ingenious solutions, but this one was really good. The possible amendment that the staff is proposing would involve using closing exchange rates to translate all affected amounts, which is a simple, practical, and would not change any of the underlying principles in or in the scope of IS-21 or IS-29. The possible amendment would simply prescribe a new translation method to apply, when, which would bring consistency and enhance comparability within and between financial statements while using closing exchange rates would not necessarily achieve the same outcome as directly reflecting the effects of inflation, there is currently some consensus that translating an item using closing exchange rates is more reflective of the current measuring unit. Thanks very much, Donne. Now remember, the ISP will discuss the committee's recommendations at one of our future board meetings. Uh, with that, we sign off until next time. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks to Karen and Donne for joining us. Just as a reminder, you can catch up on our previous episodes of this and the IASB podcasts on our website, as well as via our YouTube channel and Spotify. And remember, for latest developments, also subscribe on our website. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.